Good morning, everybody. Just when you thought it was safe, I'm back. We're continuing on with our study of Mark. Uh, I'd encourage you, uh, if you haven't done so, read along during the week uh, and read through the book of Mark. Make it your own uh, and reinforce what we're teaching you here on Sunday morning. And uh, actually, I've uh, been learning a lot myself, much to my surprise. So when we first picked this study, I was kind of skeptical, but uh, I've been blessed personally. And uh, this week I had an epiphany, and I'll share that with you uh, also, that I thought was very important. But anyway, uh, I'm going to go through uh, Mark chapter 8 in your bulletin. You have some fill-ins, so just kind of track with me so you can fill in the points. If you get bored, write down your grocery list for the week or play tic-tac-toe or write your love notes to your wife or whatever, or spouse. Um, Make productive use out of the bulletin. So I'm going to go through chapter 8, and I'm going to start off with uh, Jesus' miracle feeding of the 4,000. I promised you two weeks ago that I would do a comparison with uh, the miracle here in chapter 8 where he feeds 4,000 and in chapter 6 where he fed 5,000 and because I think there's a point to be learned there. So if you look at the two uh, passages, uh, Mark 6 and Mark 8, uh, in Mark 6 he fed 5,000 and Mark 8 he fed 4,000. Matthew gives us a little bit of insight. He says that he fed or the numbers are the number of men. That was the way they counted the crowd back then. So there's probably actually double the number of people at each one of these events. This miracle in Mark 6 is, is one of the only, other than the resurrection, it's the only um, miracle that's recorded in all four Gospels. In Mark chapter 8, the feeding of the 4,000, it's in Matthew and Mark. Now, what was on the menu that day? Well, uh, there were five loaves and two fishes in Mark 6. And in uh, Mark 8, there were seven loaves and fish. And I think Jesus likes fish because uh, that was one of the meals he ate when he first appeared to his disciples. And then uh, on the Sea of Galilee, after the resurrection, he prepared a meal of bread and fish for his disciples. So if you don't like bread and fish, then you probably don't want to go to heaven. So... Just, I just give them to you as God gives them to me. The leftovers, uh, there were 12 baskets uh, in number uh, Mark 6, and there were uh, 7 in Mark chapter 8. And some people make some significance out of the numbers. They say 5 refers to the 5 books of Moses, and 12 referring to the 12 tribes of Egypt, or 12 tribes of Israel. And uh, 7 is a number of completion or fulfillment, so... Um, Somebody's throwing chairs back there. Um, So I don't know what to make of that, but I'll just pass it on. Um, The crowd was with Jesus for one day in Mark chapter 6. And in Mark chapter 8, they were with him for three days. All right, now who expressed the initial concern of the crowd? It was the disciples in Mark chapter 6. But in Mark chapter 8, Jesus was the one who expressed concern over the crowd. All right, so a little bit of difference here. All right, where did this take place? Well, the miracle of uh, the feeding of the 5,000 took place near Bethsaida, and uh, Mark chapter 8 took place in a town called, or a region called Decapolis. And if you look at a map, uh, Bethsaida is up here in the northern coast of the Sea of Galilee, and Decapolis is this region down here, and it's a Greek compound word meaning 10 cities. And it was just a remnant of when the Greeks had conquered the world, and there was a region of ten different cities, so that's why they called it Decapolis. So that's your Greek lesson for today. 
Who were the primary members in the audience on each one of these occasions? The Jews uh, lived primarily in uh, the Bethsaida area, and Gentiles were predominantly present in the area of Decapolis. So it's interesting that the disciples were concerned about their fellow Jews after one day of being with Jesus. And even though they knew that Jesus could feed a crowd, they didn't say a word even after three days of the crowd being with Jesus. So what's our conclusion? Well, Jesus wanted to reach the whole world, Jews and Gentiles. And the other conclusion is the disciples were a bunch of racists. I know that sounds blunt, but the Jews avoided the Gentiles because it made them ceremonially unclean. And they had to cleanse themselves and purify themselves in order to uh, participate in the temple. So what the disciples did and the Jews would do is they would avoid the Gentiles, uh, sort of look down upon them, and consider them basically second-class citizens. And that was part of the reason why they probably didn't say anything. But the point is, in your number one of your bulletin, that even though the disciples are hanging out with Jesus, um, or because you do hang out with Jesus, it does not mean you have your act together. All right? Because you come to church, because you read your Bible, does not mean you're perfect. All right? People generally have a positive impression of Jesus, non-Christians. But what tends to keep them away from following Christ are Christians. Jesus loved the whole world, including the Gentiles, and the disciples obviously needed to realign their thinking, their attitudes, and behaviors towards the Gentiles in order to be like Jesus. And it takes effort to change a lifestyle of, or a life pattern of attitudes and values, and that's what the disciples were dealing with. And perhaps we as followers of Jesus need to rethink some of the things in our lives that we consider to be normal in everyday activities. Like, for example, maybe we need to think about how we do our jobs. How do we serve our boss? How do we serve the company that we work for? Maybe we need to think about how we spend our money. Are we investing in our kingdom? Are we investing in God's kingdom? Maybe we need to look at how we treat our spouses, because largely we treat our spouses based upon the example that we saw of our parents treating each other. And maybe we need to think about how would Jesus have me to treat my spouse? Here's one for you. Maybe we need to rethink our political views and to look at issues and form our positions based on biblical perspectives instead of being influenced by popular opinion. How about maybe more Christians need to get out and vote so that we can stop the holocaust of the slaughter of the innocent unborn? Just because we hang out with Jesus doesn't mean we have our act together. Never think we've got our act together. Even the Apostle Paul confessed that he didn't have it together. He says, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on. This is the Apostle Paul. As long as we live, God's going to need to work on us to refine us to be, so we can be like Jesus. And our point is that we need to all know Jesus better to have a clearer understanding of who he is and what his mission is so that we can realign ourselves to him. So after Jesus feeds the 4,000, him and the dirty dozen get in their boat and they go across the Sea of Galilee. 
And when they get to the other side, they come to the Pharisees, Jesus' favorite people. And the Pharisees came out and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven. You can say I got sign from heaven in big words. And if you're like me, you're probably thinking, why do they need to see any more miracles? Well, here's Jesus' response. Sighing deeply in his spirit, he says, why does this generation seek for a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Now after this point, Jesus went on and he still did more miracles. But what it appears is going on is that the, the, the uh, Pharisees were literally looking for a sign from heaven. Perhaps what they had in mind was one of the ten plagues of Egypt where hail and fire came from heaven. You know, that was associated with Moses. Or maybe they were thinking of the prophet Elijah who, had a, who built an altar, put wood on it, put a sacrifice on it, soaked it with water, and then fire came down from heaven to consume the sacrifice. Jesus refused to put on a show for the disciples, or for the Pharisees. So for us, this little passage, we need to be careful if or when we ask God for a sign. And I'm sure if you're like me, uh, you struggle with your faith every once in a while and you'd like to see a miracle, right? Just something to encourage us or something, uh, a sign of some kind to know that we're on the right track. But before we ask God for a sign, maybe we should stop and reflect on what God has done for us. Because it's amazing what we forget if we take inventory of what he's done for us, how he's answered certain prayers, how he's brought people in to help us, or a scripture verse or something that came uh, to light, is he does give us evidence. And we just need to be careful uh, that we're not like the Pharisees. And point number two is just be careful about asking God for signs because you may already have all that you need. All right, so this is after this encounter with the Pharisees, uh, Jesus and Dirty Dozen get back in the boat and go across the Sea of Galilee again. In the next scene in Mark chapter 8, Jesus gives a warning. This is right after he talked to the Pharisees. He says, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. First, to explain what Jesus meant here is we need to realize that leaven is, is yeast, and yeast is an ingredient that you put into dough uh, that makes bread rise. And the term, when it's used figuratively in the Bible, it usually refers to something that has a pervasive influence that, that modifies or transforms something for the worst. So leaven is usually something uh, that refers uh, to something that has a negative influence. So the word picture that Jesus is painting is that just like leaven will make, it will spread in the dough and it will make the, the dough rise, so likewise the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod can influence people. And what he's talking about, the leaven of, Fer of the Pharisees is probably hypocrisy because those guys had such a double standard. And then uh, the leaven of Herod, Herod was the king uh, mentioned in chapter 6, and he just lived this luxuriant lifestyle with power and influence and whatever he needed. So he, the leaven of, Fer of uh, Herod is probably referring to worldliness. So what Jesus is saying is watch out, you know, don't be a hypocrite, don't get caught up in worldliness because it can pervade into your life. You need to be careful. However, the disciples misunderstood Jesus. Jesus, he mentions the word leaven, so they were thinking about bread. Now, the disciples thought that, that Jesus was a little bit upset because uh, they thought he was referring to the fact that they had forgotten to bring bread with them on this trip. 
So Jesus understands what they're thinking, and, and he, he has to address them. He says, uh, being aware of their misunderstanding, he said to them, Why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet see or understand? Have you, do you have a hardened heart? Having eyes, do you not see? Now keep in mind that seeing is a metaphor for understanding, and the phrase there that I've highlighted, having eyes, uh, do you not see, is an important statement as we go forward in the rest of this chapter, and especially in the next scene. And in the next scene uh, is the passage that, that Luke read for us. So Jesus heals a blind man, but at first glance it appears that the miracle, it appears that the miracle is flawed because Jesus has to do it in two, or he does it in two steps. And I'll just read the passage again for you. And it says, They came to Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man to Jesus and implored him to touch him. Taking the blind man by the hand, he brought him out of the village, and after spitting in his eyes uh, and laying his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, for I see them like trees walking around. Then again he laid his hands on his eyes. He looked intently and was restored and began to see everything clearly. Now, I don't know about you, but um, I've been to church my whole life. I've been reading the Bible since I was a kid. And every time I've read this passage, it's always bothered me. Why did it take Jesus two attempts to heal this guy? I mean, Jesus is God. He's perfect. Why didn't his first attempt work? Was Jesus sick that day? Did he have a cold? Was he a little under the weather and wasn't his normal supernatural self? Did Jesus forget to have his quiet time that day and was lacking a little bit of power? Or did Jesus pray the wrong prayer? Did he pray about cataracts when he should have been praying about glaucoma? Uh, obviously, I'm joking, but, uh, or, or seriously, did Jesus simply choose to do a two-step process? Well, this is the thing that I learned this week, and I, I never would have come across it, I was just talking with Ben before the service, I, I used what's called a background commentary. And the commentator mentioned that what Mark recorded for us was what's called an acted parable or a living parable. And a parable is a story that's meant to provide instruction or make a point. So an acted parable is an action that's performed to illustrate a point. Now, just to show you that I'm not out to lunch or this commentator's not out to lunch, there's several examples in the Old Testament of acted parables. One is Isaiah chapter 20, where God had asked the prophet Isaiah to walk around naked like a prisoner of war. Now, why did he do that? The Israelites were afraid of the Assyrians coming in to conquer them. And so the Israelites wanted to be, uh, make an alliance with the Egyptians so they could defend themselves against the Assyrians. And God said, no, don't trust the Egyptians, trust me. Walking around naked was meant to show what was going to happen to the Egyptians, that the Assyrians were going to conquer the Egyptians and take them off, take them as prisoners of war and march them around naked. So that was why Isaiah, he was illustrating that point. Another illustration is of Jeremiah. He was preaching a sermon and he had this earthen or clay jug or jar and he throws it down and shatters it into a million pieces and that was to illustrate the coming destruction of the kingdom of Judah. So there are precedences for acted parables in the Bible. So what point was Jesus making, or what was his message in doing this two-step miracle? The point that Jesus was making was that his, 
was that his disciples had begun to see who he was, but they still were partially blinded. And again, metaphorically speaking, seeing is a, it's a metaphor for understanding. Jesus was illustrating his disciples' slow but gradual understanding of who he is and what his mission was. So before I go any further, Mark, I think a point here is that uh, I want you to have is that to have confidence in the Bible. Because many times our questions can lead to insightful discoveries. And I've heard this from several prominent Bible teachers. Is they would read a passage, it wouldn't make any sense, it just didn't seem to fit. And when they dug into it, they found a treasure to help them explain what was going on. And I think this was, this was the classic case, at least it was for me. Maybe you guys knew about the act of parables. I did not. So what goes on? What happens after he heals the blind man? And Jesus, uh, they're on their way with, uh, to the next town. Uh, and on the way, he questions his disciples, saying to them, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, but others, one of the prophets. And Jesus gets personal with his disciples, and he continued by questioning them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said to him, you're the Christ. Ding, 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 ding. Give Peter a proby snack. He gets it. He got it right. Okay? Then Jesus goes on, after he did this statement, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And then Mark puts his sentence in here and he was stating the matter plainly. Usually Jesus speaks pretty plainly, but Mark puts this in here for emphasis. So the question is, did Peter really understand what he meant when he said that Jesus was the Christ? And just when you think Peter's starting to see the whole picture clearly, he does something that proves that he doesn't understand. And Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke Jesus. Now, you don't have to be a Christian or read your Bible to know that what comes next is not going to be pleasant. All right? But turning around... And seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter. And he said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. Now, why was Peter rebuking Jesus in the first place? Peter had his mind made up that the Christ or the Messiah was someone who would come and overthrow the Romans and reestablish the kingdom of Israel. In the Old Testament, the Messiah is going to do that. The Messiah was going to be a conquering king that would make Israel one of the preeminent nation, or make them the preeminent nation of the world. That was what Peter had locked into his mind, and there was no confusing him. That was what Jesus was supposed to do. And that was why he was rebuking Jesus. So, so Peter's misconception is actually based on a nugget of truth. But even though Jesus had just told Peter what the plan was, to suffer, to be rejected and killed and be raised on the third day, Peter couldn't get past his mental image of who the Christ was or what what the Messiah was going to do. 
And Jesus took Peter's misconception very seriously and looked at him and addressed Satan. Peter must have been absolutely embarrassed that Jesus essentially charged him with being an ally or an instrument of Satan. So here's the point, and if you don't listen to anything else or go away with anything else that I say today, this is, this is very important. Thank you for the dramatic music leading up to the point. Whenever we embrace a limited, narrow view of Jesus, we are promoting Satan's agenda. Whenever we embrace a limited view of Jesus, we are promoting Satan's agenda. So let me just explain this a little bit. So here we can see how Jesus, his acted parable illustrated Peter's blurred vision or his misunderstanding of who he was. Peter started to understand, but he still didn't fully comprehend the person and the mission of Jesus. Peter, as well as the rest of the disciples, didn't get the full picture of who Jesus was until later, until after the resurrection. You see, all of the disciples, as well as Peter, had this vision, this mentality, this limited view that Jesus was going to be this victorious, conquering king to reestablish the kingdom of Israel. And they thought that since they were part of Jesus' inner circle, they were going to be governors or administrators or big shots in the, in the Jesus' coming kingdom. That was how they viewed Jesus. So let me ask you a question. How do you see Jesus? What image comes to your mind first and foremost whenever you think of Jesus? Is he the Jesus who is the shepherd that finds his lost sheep? Do you picture him as coming to find you when you've lost your way? Is he the Jesus that welcomes the little children? Maybe you think of the song, Jesus loves the little children of the world. And maybe you think of yourself as one of these children that Jesus embraces. Is your view of Jesus limited as to one who heals the sick? And maybe you only come to Jesus when you or a loved one is in need of physical healing. Is he the Jesus who invites you to come and find rest for your weary soul? Do you picture him as uh, the one you come running to when life gets too tough? Is he the Jesus who gives us eternal life by paying the penalty of our sins? Maybe you limit your image of Jesus as just being our Savior and, and limiting him to his role in our salvation. You see, in all these images of Jesus, what we have here is what He's doing for us. And if your image of Jesus is limited or confined to one or a few of these, then you have a wrong or distorted view of Jesus. And again, whenever we embrace a limited view of Jesus, we are promoting Satan's agenda. Now, I'm not talking about a new Christian who is just learning about Jesus, you know, one step at a time. You learn about his love, you learn about his forgiveness, you learn that he's powerful and can do miracles. I'm referring to longtime believers who are just fixated on one aspect of Jesus. Overemphasizing one aspect of Jesus at the exclusion of the others is a, is a distortion of who he is. You see, people can develop extreme views such as liberalism, in which there are no moral standards or restrictions and people feel they're free to do whatever they want because 
God still loves me. Or maybe they go to the other extreme and they embrace legalism in which they're fearful of offending him and they have heavy expectations or burdensome rules that uh, are always imposed upon themselves and others. Having a distorted view of Jesus can lead to the formation of cults like the Mormons, the Moonies, the Jehovah's Witnesses. So a point to ponder, it's not in your bulletin, but uh, we need to know Jesus fully to be able to follow him correctly. We need to follow, we need to know Jesus fully in order to follow him correctly. We need to remember that Jesus is also our judge, our king, and our God. And he is worthy of our highest respect and our full obedience. One day we will all give an account of our lives to him. We will answer to him how we spent our time, our energy, our money. What did we do with the truths that we learned from his scripture? And Mark brings this to our attention in the last section of chapter 8. And, some, and he summoned the crowd with his disciples. So he's not just talking to his disciples. He's talking to everybody. So this just doesn't apply to teachers and the pastors. It applies to everybody who's thinking of following Jesus. And he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his own soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? And he goes on to say, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Following Jesus involves a conscious decision to deny yourself. And that means to put God and others ahead of yourself. It means to take up your cross, and a cross is an instrument of death. And what we're to do is to be killing our self-centeredness and our self-serving ambitions. And then we choose every moment of every day to follow him not just at Sundays at 11 o'clock, but everywhere, in the workplace, as we drive, <laughs> with our families, with our friends. It's not to be taken lightly, and it's not just stated here, it's also stated in Luke's Gospel. And he says a little bit differently, and this is from the message. It says, anyone who, who comes to me but refuses to let go of Father mother, spouse, children, brothers, sisters, yes, even one's own self, can't be my disciple. Anyone who won't shoulder his cross and follow behind me can't be my disciple. And then a few verses later it says, simply put, if you are not willing to take what is dearest to you, whether plans or people, and kiss it goodbye, you can't be my disciple. 
So let me ask you, did you have a distorted view of Jesus? Do you see him more clearly now? Point number five, I'll close. Two questions. Do you want to be his disciple? Or maybe after the message, do you still want to be his disciple? Dearly Father, we come before you today. We thank you for...